Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. You can see it right there. With the lovely and talented, my colleague Mary Gamma, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Especially when you introduce me like that, it's a good day. Well, that's because your review is coming up and I wasn't going to give you the money you expected. That being said, I'm Steve Adubato. <laughs> this is in Lessons in Leadership. Look at all these wonderful, this is part of our leadership library, a whole range of books beyond my book, Lessons in Leadership. There are other great books here. We'll be plugging them throughout these series. Before I introduce the uh, very lovely and talented and outspoken young lady we have on this edition of Lessons in Leadership, uh, Michelle Adubato, the CEO of the North Ward Center and my older sister. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. So she's uh, you we're sure the, are the same joking. age. We're twins. So uh, Mary, tell folks where they can find us. Absolutely. They can find us on our website, stand-deliver.com. Also on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. What about the whole Apple podcast and uh, the Google Play thing? I was going to get there in just a moment, but thank you. And they could actually subscribe to us on Apple podcast and on Google Play. But there's more than that. We're also being found these days on the AM 970. Those are our partners in New York at the great radio station in Lower Manhattan on Wall Street. Find us on their website, AM 970, plus Fios On Demand, R-O-I-N-J, as well as New Jersey Business and Industry Association site and other places. We're going to be all over soon. That being said, Mary, let's also thank... By the way, Michelle, we don't actually talk to you. We just thank all kinds of people like our funders. You know about fundraising, right? I do. And you have to thank your funders. All the time. And our funders are? They are New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis. We thank them very much. As Prager well Metis, as one of the great accounting firms. They sure are, absolutely. And RWJ Barnabas Health, we would like to thank them as well. Great stuff. So let me introduce on Lessons in Leadership, my talented and very outspoken and strong younger sister, Michelle Adubato, who is the CEO of the Northwood Center. How are you doing? Good. Very good. Like and this? I'm going to get in big trouble if I don't say also the founder of the Center for Autism. Nice. Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much. And I would get in trouble if I didn't say we were at East Main Media Studios. Brian, <laughs> right? Yes. Thank yes. you. And Part can we plug a website as well for the Center for Autism? Would you like to do that? www.centerforautism.org. And the Northwood Centers? Is northwardcenter.org. Wow, that's really a lot. You so have I have to people for that. Have... <laughs> <laughs> Let me, let's get right into this. I love it. Have you always... I can't remember. Have... You can't either, so don't listen, I don't, don't remember qu anything. Here's my question. People, your people. People. Are they your people, right? Meaning mm -hmm. you want to mold them into what you yeah. believe they need to be the best team, because by the way, that's what lessons and leadership is all about, is learning. Are they, because mm -hmm. you are highly intense as I am, have ridiculously mm. high standards, uh, do not suffer fools lightly, and are impatient. I wonder where we got that from? <laughs> Certainly our dad. Yes, yeah, Steve Senior, who is the founder of the Northwest Center. In all seriousness, do you find that it's challenging being as high-powered, type A, high standards, no BS, no excuses, and that's all meant to be a compliment in all seriousness, mm -hmm. and others who don't live that way? Yeah, it sure is, because... You know, what happens is you have to be your best self at all times, meaning you, who you are as a leader. And, you know, the problem is that you also have to find where people belong. What does that mean? You have to find where they fit. Uh, Jim and Collins, a book right in front of you, absolutely. he talks about putting the right people on the right seats very important. on the bus. Go ahead. Very important. Because someone could be very talented in a certain area, but if they don't fit what you need them to do, it's not going to work. So I think... I've evolved, hopefully, as a leader. From what to what? Well, I was, yeah, intense is a good word. I think I still <laughs> am intense. But I do take a moment. I'm going with passionate. Yeah, You're passionate. I do take a moment now to say, 
the people that I have around me are trying their hardest. Because sometimes I think we would all be like, you know, you're just not doing enough. Why can't you do this? And it's like, first you have to come from a place of these are really good people mm. who are really trying to do their best. Now, my role then, I think my role has changed because coming from like a, a micromanager. By the way, describe your background before you came into the CEO position of the North Ward Center, celebrating its 50th yes. anniversary, which is a big year. 2020? 2020, 2020 right. This will be heard and seen in 2020. That's amazing. That's amazing. That is amazing. Right? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Before you came back to the organization our dad started yeah. 50 years ago, right. you were a leader where? So I was a principal for a long time at New Jersey Regional Day School. I spent 20 over, about 25 years in North Public School System. That gets you ready. <laughs> that certainly How gets so? you ready. Because you're dealing with, I think, a group of people that we want to say, want to do the right thing, but maybe their knowledge base is definitely mixed. And you have to try to do your best with what you have. You don't get to move people onto the right seats on the buses easily? Exactly. And that's really part of, I think, where the evolution of, for me, after spending a couple of decades at Newark Public Schools, which, again, tough place. It's challenging what we're doing, but you have to have that passion. And sometimes, I think in every field probably, Mm. maybe people stay a bit too long and you don't have the ability to just kind of maneuver and that's like a huge thing that you need to do, which where I am now at the North Ward Center is, uh, you know, my ability to do that. Which, By the way, which, uh, sorry for interrupting. Describe the North Ward Center for those who wow. don't know. And also go on the website. It's northwardcenter.org. Right. Not .com. It's a not-for-profit. Yeah. Yes. All right. So what? They <laughs> yeah, because you ch- had that written down somewhere. No, I, don't, I just know. <laughs> He actually doesn't have it written down. (laughs) No, because Daddy would be not happy if we didn't know the website, which you didn't and I did, but that's okay. But I think it's important for people to know, what is the Northward Center? So the Northward Center, again, has been around for 50 years, and it's a multi-service nonprofit. Started out with preschool, started out with youth leadership development. We have over 700 preschoolers, Abbott Preschool. We have a private preschool We have the largest youth leadership development program in the city of Newark. Mm. We have Casa Israel adult medical day programming. We have family services. My father also founded uh, Robert Treat Academy. A charter school. uh, Blue Ribbon Charter School. Recognized nationally. Absolutely. So there's an array of services there. So, you know, it's interesting. By the way, if you want to find out more about Michelle and I making reference to our father, Steve Adubato Sr., right. you should Google Steve Adubato Sr. A lot of interesting things will come up. Yeah. But I write a lot about our father in my book, Lessons in Leadership. That's where the name of this right. show came from. And there's a lot of very candid stuff about his leadership style, which I'll give you the opportunity to describe. Because I often do this with Mary, and I think she thinks I'm exaggerating or you know, engaging in hyperbole. Describe the leadership style of our dad, Is both that- at home, at home. Is that a work. style? Would you consider that a style? Okay, what would you call it? I don't think you can put it in a book. Well, I did put it in a book. You put it like for a couple of pages and you glossed over it because it's not a style. Okay, what did we learn about life and leadership growing up, which has influenced who you are as a leader today? Absolutely, but it also influenced me on things that I shouldn't do. I said that in the book. Go ahead. So I think the biggest takeaway we can take from our dad in terms of leadership is at high standards. Like, definitely, it has to be the best. Good isn't good enough. How do you get good to great? And that's really the challenge. 
the passion, the mission, the focus. I think the things that... How about the yelling? The yelling doesn't help. <laughs> um, Tell us more. What, <laughs> so I think what I learned from my dad in terms of leadership, again, the good things are, again, the passion and the focus and the mission-driven purpose. And the vision, purpose. too. Having vision a vision nobody is, else even sees, much less yes, buys into. And that's what I call the curse. I have what? the curse of vision. Why is it a curse? Because, it's a good thing you, as a leader. Because sometimes you see things before it happens, and it's almost unfair to the people around you because I start in mid-sentences, and they're like, what? I'm like, okay, now we're going to go here. And they're like, wait a minute, we just finished this, Michelle, and you want us to pivot that? And I'm like, yeah, we're moving. Hold on a second. I call that connecting the dots. Mary's yeah. like, what dots here? Mm -hmm. Mary connects the dots, and she sees dots I don't see. Mm -hmm. You pick yeah. up what she's talking about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why she said, Michelle says it's a curse. By the way, you're listening to or watching Lessons in Leadership, Steve Adubato with Mary Gamba, our co-host and executive producer, and also Michelle Adubato, the CEO of the Northwood Center, celebrating its 50th anniversary and also the head of the Center for Autism. She says it's a curse. It is a curse. Any great visionary, any great leader, and I understand mm. completely what you're saying. Once you have that great, grandiose idea, then you have to get people to follow Absolutely. and you have to get people to believe in it and buy there into it, it and get it done. And the hardest thing is getting the right people on board to get that done for you and yep. to see it from your perspective as well. Will the they ever? The other thing is, and that's, that's the key, Mary, because if it's just your vision and you can't share it, and I think that was kind of like where my father lacked. Don't you see it? <laughs> and, and what happens is when you have somebody like that that is so overbearing and overpowerful is that sometimes the people around just will shut down. Right. Mm. And that's what I don't want. I'll be in meetings and I'm like, I do question myself and say, why am I the only one talking right now? Mm -hmm. Are you not hearing me? Is it not connecting? So I, I do a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. So I can say I make mistakes, as we all do. Mm. The evolution of leadership is about, for me, is to really spend more time with my leaders and for them to share that vision. So because as you get more and more employees, the problem is, are you still connecting? Are you a micromanager? Absolutely. But I have tried to really walk away from that in terms of micromanaging. And what I've realized is you can't be a mic after a certain point. I call it strategic you, micromanaging. Pick your spots. Yeah, but, you you know, if you do that all the time, you're either going to wind up in the hospital yeah. or you're going to have the high blood pressure through the roof and, and no one uh, mm. will continue the vision because it's much more than myself. You backed off. And then people yeah, won't have. believe well, in themselves. If you're constantly right there, it's almost like raising a child. If you're yeah, constantly, absolutely. and Steve and I talk about this a lot, yeah. if you're there to save them all the time, if you're I, there to tell them how to do something half of the time before they've even begun it, it definitely causes them to question their own ability Absolutely. to get things done on their own. Yeah. By the way, Michelle's talking about self-reflection. And again, these books are not simply props. This book by Dr. Yeah. Daniel Goleman, I'm a big fan of because he coined the phrase, quote unquote, emotional intelligence. And I talk about him a lot because emotional intelligence to me is a lot of things. But the one thing I know it is, is knowing yourself and being very self-reflective and questioning. Because why are you always questioning yourself? Well, it's because I'm not sure. I love people who are sure about everything. They scare me. But Goldman talks a lot about that. And when you come from, and that's really where my question is, when you come from 
a legacy or you take over an organization mm -hmm. where there's a strong legacy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we do in our book, Lessons in Leadership, there's a lot about succession mm -hmm. planning. And let's just say succession planning in our family with my father running the Northwood Center was he was never going to stop running the Northwood Center. Exactly. That, that was, was his succession that was the plan. plan. I'll be here forever. Yeah. Well, what about mm -hmm. if we, I remember yeah. like 20 years ago, they started, to, yeah. he's 87 on Christmas Eve. Like 20 years ago, they started this conversation. He looked around like, who's starting this conversation? Right. Like, there must be a coup against me. <laughs> Meaning succession planning was not, mm -hmm. you came in to help an organization that needed mm -hmm. your help. My point is this, is it any more difficult to be a strong leader in an organization where there's such a strong legacy of your father yes. as a CEO, not just your uncle or your cousin right. or a distant relative? Go ahead. Absolutely. But I came in with a lot of tools. I came in as the founder of the Center for Autism. I came in with an excellent reputation of managing and leading. I think if I came in kind of like, you know, I've never done this before. Or the yeah, kid that didn't have a job. And right, right. You know, the daughter, like, Mary that and I watch succession. Be, no, you don't watch succession, do you? Be, no, I don't. Mary, like, yeah. It's like, who's mm -hmm. going to take over the family yeah. business? <laughs> exactly. And one's a total goofball. Right, yeah. right. But the point is... Everything else fails, so, like, let me yeah. do this. But Michelle, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you try Michelle it all had the track record coming. Yeah, mm -hmm. I had a track record. So and um, Do you often think, what would Steve Senior do? <laughs> I do. And I often say to myself, I think he would be really proud of that. I know he would. But I often say, also, hmm, that's not something my dad would do. But that being said... I am spending a lot of time on what's going to happen after me. Let's stay with this. And by the way, look, can we thank our funders again at New Jersey Resources, Prager Metis, the accounting firm, and also RWJ Barnabas right. mm -hmm. Health and a whole range of others. And Check for out people our... on the radio, we'll remind, we're talking to Michelle Adubato. Well, this is Michelle Adubato, the mm -hmm. CEO of the North Ward Center, celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2020. 20. Go on our website, by the way, at uh, stand-deliver.com to check out more. But Michelle, let me jump right back into this. We have you for a couple more minutes. We ask leaders who happen to be women this question all the time, mm -hmm. so I'm asking. Leadership, strong leadership, effective leadership for a woman, any different than for a man? If so, how? Mm -hmm. I think we have to prove ourselves more. We have to make sure we're always on. Don't take it personal, but I think we're better managers of things in terms of doing more than one thing at a time. Get out of here. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Multitasking. I think I just had this conversation with one of my leaders this morning. Stop. Seriously? <laughs> absolutely. You're, women are we better are... multitaskers than men. Make <laughs> the case. Absolutely. You can't just make these statements. I've seen it over and over again. Men, you need to help. Like, okay, we're going to do this today, mm -hmm. and this is what else is going to happen, and now we're going to do this. And I see my leaders who happen to be women go, okay, let's go. And I'm like, okay, let, let's work with them. He needs some help. Mary, you so, buy this multitask? Oh, I, By I, the way, Mary's the quintessential well, look at who multitask. We are. We're mothers, we're right. aunts, we're neighbors, we're, taking care of parents. we're yeah. bosses, we're, yep. yeah, we're taking care of parents, we're daughters. I mean, we do a lot of things at once. You buy that, Mary? Exactly. I buy it. Wholeheartedly. And then and watch football on Sunday. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Mary's watching <laughs> hockey, trust me. I, I always go back to every Christmas. My husband is just as excited about what the kids are opening as the kids are because he yeah. had no part in planning it, no right. part. He's like, oh, Ooh, that's great. <laughs> we got and, that. <laughs> and we both work full time, so it's not like I'm home and I have but all this time to get everything. But you're responsible for that. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Women do multitask. Yes. Uh, yeah. 
leading a not-for-profit. As we're taping today, we got some top-level executives within the university world, right. also our chief counsel at WNET, Bob Feinberg's coming in, who also founded the Montclair Film Festival, just all kinds of different people. But a lot of the folks we interview are in the for-profit sector. Mm -hmm. You're in the not-for-profit sector. Mm -hmm. Leadership in the not-for-profit sector versus, hey, bottom line, got to make money, business world. Any different? Well, in this climate that we're in, you better start looking at your finances and understanding where all your funding stream is. So I wouldn't say it. It may be different in, not to in mention certain contexts. Absolutely. I mean, it's not easy to compete out there, as we've seen, like many nonprofits. I've heard like, so where did this go? Oh, we had a grant one year. We don't have a grant. That's not the way the Northward Center works. So we are in, as we say, the business of social service. And that's certainly from our dad business. Absolutely. And, if, and what would if he it say about a program that wasn't either bringing in money mm -hmm. or was failing financially? What would he say? Don't do it. Not for us. And I do um, have that same philosophy of if this does not help us to sustain our central office or whatever we need to do, it's probably a wonderful thing. It's just not for us. Hence the 50 years of the Northward Center going strong. By the way, what's the celebration going to be like? Oh, it's going to be a year long celebration. Steve Senior loves oh celebrations. Yeah. He loves big too. things. Yeah, it's gonna be big. A lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Almost every month we have something else going on because that's what it's going to take. You know, we thought about one big event. We certainly are going to have that. But it's like going down to the city hall, going down to, you know, county freeholders, you know, going to our, all the different places that have been a part of who we are. And so every month we have something planned. Real quick, before I let you go, the Center for Autism, describe it and why it matters personally and professionally to you. First of all, running a nonprofit has always been, you know, my heart, who I am. The Center for Autism is a culmination of everything about my profession and what I expect to do for uh, people and what we need to do for our community. Because unfortunately, in Newark, there are no services, little to no services for people with autism and their family. And literally, if we were not there, if we were not the foundation, there would be nothing there. But not only are we there, they're very aware of us and we're such a huge part of this community. And that community is part of who I am. I can say that people with autism have taught me more about human nature than any other person, even with, uh, I would put my dad in that, because they've taught me about humanity. And they've taught me about integrity. You've been listening to Michelle Adubato, and the person who clearly has taught her the most is sitting right here. It's uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, thanks, Steve. It's me. <laughs> hey, stop fooling around. This is a serious podcast, video cast, could be heard, could be seen. And that's why we have the best leaders from anywhere in the tri-state area. Michelle Adubato, my little sister doing big things, the CEO of the Northwood Center, also the founder, the head of the, the person who created the Center for Autism, celebrating 50th anniversaries at the Northward Center, an organization our dad founded in 1970 as a school teacher in Newark, making yep. less than no money. Trust me, we were the kids we knew. And he created this organization because he had a dream and he wanted to help other people. You've done well. I'm proud of you. We're all proud of you. Thank you. Dad would be proud of you. By the way, we never could teach him anything about leadership. He wouldn't listen. <laughs> but that being said, this has been Lessons in Leadership. We'll take a quick break. I want to thank our funders again at RWJ Barnabas Health. Prager met us, the accounting firm. New Jersey Resources, a terrific energy company down at the Jersey Shore. I'm Steve Adubato. That's Mary Gamba. This is Michelle Adubato, and we'll be right back. 
This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis, your world worth more. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato and my trusted colleague, Mary Gamba. We were just listening to uh, Michelle Adubato, the CEO of the North Ward Center, the founder of the Center for Autism. Your biggest takeaways? Just really knowing the people on your team is a big part of leadership. Michelle talked a lot about she can't do it on her own, even though she would like to. We would all like to, right? We talk about you and I being micromanagers. If you want something right, do it yourself. But you cannot be an effective leader if you're going to rely on doing it all yourself. There's a couple other things that she mentioned. And again, I don't want to obsess over this whole thing of the fact that our dad was the founder of the North Ward Center and we learned leadership and about life from him, the things that were effective in our view and also the things that weren't not particularly effective. But I'm curious about this because we talk so much about that because our dad was such a public person and founded these organizations, was also a leader in the teachers union in Newark, New Jersey, where we grew up. To what degree do you feel you've learned about leadership from your family. P.S. Do you separate leadership from life? Oh, those are two really powerful questions. So uh, that's what I do. I know you do it well. As far as my family, and you and I have talked about this before, we were sharing before about Little House on the Prairie. My upbringing was very much the opposite of what you just talked about with your sister, Michelle. I joked in that show and called that we lived in the dysfunctional house in Newark, yes, New Jersey. Go yes, ahead. and you and Michelle had described how your dad had raised you. It was you. volatile and, and crazy and dysfunctional yeah, and angry and no one listened. There was no yelling in my family growing up. There was zero yelling, almost to a fault, and my parents will say that today, because then when I did get out into the real world and things maybe didn't go the way that they were supposed to, there wasn't somebody there to say, it's going to be okay. Sometimes it's not as collegial as that if you do something wrong, whether at work or at school, and just in life, frankly. So on the one hand, it was great because it taught me to be very empathetic and understanding, but it was a great upbringing in terms of just mm. overall knowing how to be sensitive toward others' feelings. Empathy. Yes, but thick skin, it did not give me a thick skin. Because that's why I want to talk about this. Again, these books, not a prop if you're actually watching us on video on Lessons in Leadership with Steve and Mary, but Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. This is a wonderful book, New York Times bestseller. It's on our leadership library, which mm -hmm. is on our website yes. at stand-deliver.com. Why do I mention this? Because I know we've talked about it before, but Michelle and I talk about this a lot. We were raised... And it does have to do with leadership style to confront everything, virtually all the time. Translation, crucial and difficult conversations that a lot of people avoid because it makes them uncomfortable. Colin Powell told me, as you know in the book, mm -hmm. one of the great chapters is called Sometimes Great Leaders. Yeah, piss people off. And sometimes it's because of these conversations. There's a question here, trust me. Did you have to learn to have, quote, crucial slash difficult, uncomfortable conversations? Mm -hmm. Did you have to... As a leader, did you have to learn that? I had to learn how to have those conversations with others, but first I needed to learn how to receive those conversations. When someone was giving me that feedback, when somebody was saying that something that I did really wasn't as good, well, I tried really hard, and we often hear that. And 
for me, it was a learned skill. I learned by reading. I learned by Googling, okay, how do I handle this conversation? Just last week, I had to Google how to handle a, a situation. Because did you really? I really did. Was that the one I really we had did. at work or another No, one? it was totally another one. But it was, it was all about me. It right? was, no, I don't want to bring family into it, but it was literally just how to deal when your son is disappointed after a game or after, because they weren't played or, We've been there. you know, because you think you're doing the right thing at work and leading others. And sometimes is it to say something? Is it to not say something? Is it, do you feel sorry for them? Do you empathize with them? Because you don't really know what it's like to be in their shoes. So I did a lot of reading growing up and into adulthood in terms of having those conversations. And more importantly, the consequences of not having those conversations for me was eye-opening because if you don't have those conversations that are so hard, nothing's going to change. And by the way, I was mentioning this before, if you're watching us on the video side, this baseball, which isn't just a regular baseball, it is a little league baseball and it is signed by a bunch of kids. Oh, you wonder what that. is this fun, right? Yeah, yeah. It's so the last time I coached our son's not travel team because the stakes would be too high. Yeah. It was the rec team. And I remember and all the kids signed it. And I remember you talk about, you know, a game doesn't turn out well, or Mary and I have teenage boys and we also have our daughter Olivia, who's nine. Those conversations have to take place because we are the parent. Mm-hmm. We have to have them. They're difficult. And with our kids, it's, sometimes it's not doing well in school, whatever. But here's what I'm going to. You and I had a conversation recently. It was a crucial and important conversation that we actually had talked about beforehand with a particular team member. And it, this could happen any organization, anywhere. It could be any one of our team members. And I remember you and I were talking about it, and we said, beforehand, what's our goal? Let's play this out. And by the way, one of the great things about this book, Crucial Conversation Tools, which I use in, in our seminars and leadership, is that there are some things you can do, and one of them before it is to determine what exactly is your goal. Well, we just have, have, have the conversation, just be honest, put it out there. Well, what's your goal? To be honest and put it out there? You want to get to a certain place. Mm-hmm. How important is it to know going in, A, what your goal is, and B, if it's veering off, am I over analyzing this? Not at all. Not at all. And in any situation, you need to, first of all, understand what the problem is, right? You need to say, this is as exactly see what, it, as we see it. Which may not be as the other person sees it. Go exactly. Ahead. And then as you said, come up with a goal. All right. At the end of this conversation, what I hope is this person is going to make sure to meet that deadline without me reminding him or her to meet the deadline, just using an example. But you also need to anticipate the pushback, the questions, the defensiveness, because human nature everyone's going to get very defensive. So don't assume mm-hmm. in great leadership and communication, I'm going to say what yeah. I need to say, and the other person is going to be very receptive, mm-hmm. and it's going to work out well. That would be nice, but that's right. not a strategy. No, that is not a strategy at all. And if anything, some people are actually really good at arguing, so you may have, you may start <laughs> second-guessing yourself. And and you don't want to sit there humming, 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 and trying to figure right. out and be like, ooh, I never thought of it that way, or maybe they're right. And not that you need to be rigid because that's not a good leadership style either, but you do need to have a roadmap going into the conversation of the if then, what, where am I going to go with this? And then right. most importantly, at the end of that conversation, what are you going to agree to both of you to do next? And we put this in writing. Yes. Why? 
if you don't put it in writing, number one, time's going to pass and you're going to forget what happened. And then three months down the line, if a similar situation happens and you say, mm. remember a few months ago we were talking about this? I don't remember that. You have it in writing. <laughs> so it's not to play gotcha, but oftentimes it's to help me to remember, was it as bad as I thought it was? Mm. Is it really just because I don't really particularly enjoy being with that person? Is it the thing or is it the person? So you need to really analyze as a leader, is it the personality, is it the person, or is it the problem at hand? You know, I'm, I'm going to say something that I'm not even sure I'm supposed to be saying on the air on lessons in leadership. Again, thank our friends, mm -hmm. otherwise known as the people who sponsor what <laughs> yes. we're doing at Prager Metis, New Jersey Resources, RWJ Barnabas Health, also the folks at Valley and the folks at Gibbons, PC, uh, local 825 operating engineers, sure. et cetera, et cetera. So let's do this. You said to me recently, and again, I don't even have the clearance to talk about this on the air. So I always get so nervous when you do this, but go ahead. You said, in no uncertain terms, your, quote, attitude mm -hmm. and level of patience mm -hmm. with excuse making. Yes. Finger pointing. I'm holding up the book. Mary, tell everyone what I'm holding up. Extreme ownership. Which is, in fact, written by two Navy SEALs who said no excuses, no blame, no finger pointing. Mm -hmm. You said to me, Steve... Maybe it's age, which clearly yep. is not your case because you're oh, so young. <laughs> you said, I, no, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to listen as long as I always have in the past. Yeah. What's going on with you? That's a great question. But I don't think that I ignore when you said that. It no, struck this is, me. Oh, no. And this is actually a great thing to talk about because I am. I, I'm challenged. And if anyone's listening and they want to just chime in and send an email, they can do so. Uh, How can they do that? I'll even give out my personal email right here because it's probably the quickest way to get to me. It's marygamba at AOL.com. Shoot me an email because I would love some advice on this one. Mary's home address is? I'm yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my height and weight. And um, so, yeah. So we were talking about this because I do. I feel like I have zero empathy. Your empathy. Hold on. You just it's, started this show mm -mm. talking. Wait a minute. I said go I learned and, it. Go back and learn I what Mary said, said about learned. her family taught her about empathy. Go it ahead. It did. I learned it. And now it's done a complete 180. I have almost, I would say, zero empathy at this point in my life. And you could ask my husband. You can ask the kids. It's bad. But on the flip side, as a leader, it helps you to confront things in a much more effective way if you can go in and take out the emotion out of it. So in the situation that you and I were talking about. Which anyone out there is listening uh, or watching us, it's an employee who in a particular situation may not meet the level of performance that is expected mm -hmm. because that is what is expected to be great, as Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, says, mm -hmm. it, the performance, it's, it's an right. issue. And it could be exactly, and anyone listening could be an has, incident. it could be anything. Go ahead. But taking empathy out of the equation helps you to be, and I don't want to say cold-hearted, but it helps you to see the issue at hand. It helps you to realize the consequences of not addressing that issue. So for me, it was really just a matter of, I don't know if it's age or what, but I, I have less of an issue confronting problems because if you don't, the behavior is not going to change. And then you could teach others. We were talking before with your sister, Michelle. Michelle, check out Arbato. the earlier mm -hmm. version. It's Michelle Adubato, the CEO of the North Ward Center. Yep, absolutely. And we were talking to her just really about succession planning. And my goal, again, and as we all are getting older, is to really just help those that are newer to working with us grow within the organization. So when the time comes and the sun sets, then there's a whole other tribe of people there that can really help us out and keep that organization moving is forward. Is that our job? It is. And I, I think that across the board, you can name any organization, healthcare, banking, anything, finance, any type of business, you need to be training and coaching and mentoring. So this way, the next group can then take over where you left off. Let's do this about two minutes left in this program. One of the things I want to touch on 
and we will talk about it in a later program in more depth, but I am curious about this. This book is simply called Blind Spots. If you're looking on camera, you can see this. Blind Spots. I'm gonna open up the Pandora's box. You know where that comes from? The term blind spot? You know what it's it reference the, to? Is it the horses? So blind spots, Mary and I do this thing. We, we ask our clients, we do leadership seminars, we do executive coaching, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I ask people to do is mm -hmm. the hub and spokes model. Would you yep. describe what it is? Yeah, the hub and spokes. So really, if you are in business, again, any type of building relationships, you put yourself at the center. You're the, the hub. hub. It's a circle. You're the draw hub. a it's circle a for yourself. Okay. If you're watching or listening, draw a circle. I'm yep. doing it right now. I'm putting on... Steve in the circle. Now, yes. what are the spokes? And then the spokes are almost like on a tire where you have the metal bar, the bicycle, bar, tire, the bicycle tire, the metal bars coming out. And then there's little bubbles on the side. In those little bubbles, you could fill in whether it's your board members, whether it's your clients, your customers. It could be the media, depending your family. on family. It could be your family. Who are they, stakeholders? Stakeholders, anybody that matters in your life. Anybody that either makes you a better person, brings in business, if they are there to support you. It could be your attorney. It could be your accountant. It's people in your orbit that you need to make sure that you're constantly connecting with on a regular basis to keep everything moving forward. Including every person on your team. Mm -hmm, definitely. And that being said, the reason why blind spots got my attention and again, it'll be on in our uh, leadership library mm -hmm. in the last minute we have on lessons in leadership. It's that I'm very focused on blind spots. Mm -hmm. And if you're not looking for where you're clouded or you don't see who you need to be dealing with, who you may not have connected with, who on your team you're losing track of, who in your orbit is not feeling the love, all of a sudden it's the last minute, late in the fourth quarter, and you're like, what do I do to fix this? And this whole concept of blind spots, and again, we'll talk about it in greater detail, and another edition of Lessons in Leadership really helps us stay on track. Yeah, no, That's absolutely. It. That's all I got. That's another edition of Lessons in Leadership funded by? It is funded by our friends at New Jersey Resources, Prager Metis, RWJ Barnabas Health, and many more. Valley Bank, as well as Local 825, the operating mm -hmm. engineers, so many others. I'm Steve Adubato. That is Mary Gamba. By the way, folks go on our website. What yep. is it again? Stan-Deliver.com. And they can follow us on Facebook at Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. Thank you, folks. Steve and Mary, Lessons in Leadership. Catch you next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis, your world worth more. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. The law firm of Gibbons PC, MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey. Wells Fargo, Johnson & Johnson, NJM Insurance Group, Community Food Bank of New Jersey, Fedway Associates, and by ADP, a comprehensive provider of human resources technology and services. Promotional support provided by NJ Advance Media and by Tap Into TV. I'm Steve Adubato. This is State of Affairs coming to you from the NJTV studio in Newark. It is our honor to introduce Dr. Sharif El-Nahal, President and CEO of University Hospital. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Steve. The former Commissioner of Health in the state. How different is this job? 
It's different, but there's a lot of the same focus on public health issues. Um, one way that it's different is that I'm actually uh, running an organization that has such an important uh, storied history here in Newark. Uh, the hospital really promised tremendous things to the community here. There's a history of displaced communities, broken promises, particularly to the African-American community here in Newark. The hospital was part of that bargain after the Newark Accords. Uh, to do something about that. And so there's a lot more community work that I do to help fulfill that promise. But I'm also focused on a lot of public health issues that I was focused on as commissioner. Top two? Uh, uh, I would say the HIV AIDS epidemic in Newark is top of mind, um, and also just chronic disease and how much that's affecting uh, residents throughout Newark. You've also talked a lot about the opioid crisis. You've written about it. I have. You said we need to do more, be more specific. So hospitals in particular have an important role to play. And uh, my involvement in this started when I was in the state. Uh, Governor Murphy really pushed us to do everything we can for the epidemic. And so one of the initiatives was reducing overprescribing of opioids. We took best practices from across the state uh, and tried to scale them. That is a funded program now. University Hospital has its own version of that program called STOMP. Uh, stomp out opioids and uh, treat addiction. So what we're doing is uh, having every single pathway possible for our emergency room physicians to prescribe things besides opioids and connecting our patients to as many alternative treatments for pain as possible. The goal is not only to avoid opioids, but to be successful in treating pain. Because if you're not successful, somebody's going to go elsewhere just to get opioids. So we've had some great success with that. 70% reduction over just a few years in opioid prescribing. Give me another topic that you care deeply about. I really care about doing a lot more for population health in Newark. You know, the term population health is thrown around a lot. Define it. It is going above and beyond outside the traditional walls of the healthcare system to do what you need to do to make patients better. If that means doing things like helping them replace their carpet, which is causing their child to go to mm. the emergency room for asthma with tile, or if that means taking a homeless person and housing them, that is what population health is about. Because the root causes that make people come to the hospital are very far upstream in terms of the difficulties they face in life. And unless we start to address those issues in Newark, we're really not going to make progress uh, for our mm. hospital. So it's interesting. You know, you have a short-term, medium-term, <clears throat> excuse me, and a long-term plan. Are these the kinds of issues that are at the top of the agenda for you as the leader at university? Absolutely. And we really have to be thinking in all three time phases. There are a lot of short-term problems that we have to address at University Hospital. I'm optimistic because the staff is from the community. Uh, they have the skills. They have the talent. They haven't had supportive leadership at my level to encourage them to do better. So uh, we're talking about improvements in quality. We're talking about improvements financially uh, to sustain the hospital. And we have to make sure we maintain regulatory compliance. I'm focused on those three things. Where does vaping fit into this? Unfortunately, hospitals across the state are seeing more and more vaping-related illness. Uh, we always knew that vaping uh, was risky, but in recent uh, months and years, uh, there's been the addition of chemicals that are involved in flavoring, uh, and most recently the CDC identified a chemical called vitamin E acetate. Vitamin E acetate, right? Yeah. That seems to be the root cause of so many young people having to go to the emergency room and be admitted to the hospital for severe lung illness from vaping. Uh, so we've seen our fair share of people uh, with vaping-related problems, uh, and it's a public health issue that we really need to address head-on. I'm curious about this. Because you have a clinical background, right, are you able to talk to your fellow clinicians in a different way? 
It helps. Uh, I would say it's not necessary to not. be a leader in public health or in a hospital, but you're able to relate uh, on a different plane, they especially you with know. the physicians and the clinicians, the nurses, uh, because of personal experience uh, that I've had seeing patients. So it definitely helps. Curious about this. University Hospital has a long history. We should also disclose uh, in the past, the university has been a supporter of the programming, <clears throat> excuse me, health-related programming we're involved in. But curious about this. Because university has been under a microscope for a long time on the state end. By the way, explain the connection between the state and university hospital. So university hospital is something called an instrumentality of the state. It's a the what? Only, an instrumentality. It's the only... <laughs> no jargon here. The only kind of uh, thing that's called an instrumentality. Um, we are part of the state, but we are independently responsible for our financial uh, future. So we have to make sure we support the hospital with our operations, the way we treat patients uh, and volume of patients that we see. Uh, we do get support from the state, of course, for charity care. We have the highest charity care population. Explain to folks who don't know what charity care is and why it matters. And it really matters these days because more and more people actually are losing health insurance in the context of what's happening in Washington. So anyone without health insurance, including Medicaid, uh, can potentially qualify for charity care where the state ends up subsidizing your care uh, a couple of years later. We have to file those claims with the state oh so boy. the state supports. Because no one can get turned care. away from the emergency room, correct? We have a mission at University Hospital that we never turn anybody away regardless of ability to pay, regardless of documentation status in the United States. Uh, we are there for everybody and that's why we have the largest percentage of uh, patients in the entire state who are charity care patients. But in that context, where I was going with the bigger <coughs> picture question is this, how challenging is it for you and your team at university to deal with reputation? Meaning, if someone reads certain media reports, uh, certain hospital scores a certain way on a particular um, grading system, and there's so many out there, but their perception is that university is an urban hospital, trauma hospital, I don't want to get into a branding question, but how much of it is not just what you do, but how you present what you do to the larger community? It's a really important role that I have, Steve. So uh, the different uh, metrics and the different grading systems uh, don't necessarily capture what University Hospital does. Methodology is a funny thing. It is. <laughs> we are the level one trauma center for the Explain region. Explain that. We take the most severe trauma in the region. Uh, and that comes to our hospital. We have the expertise, we have the surgeons, we have the infrastructure to be able to treat the most uh, severe injury, whether it's a car accident or an episode of violence in the city, we are there uh, for the city. We are also the main academic medical center for Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. And so we have some of the top-notch academic physicians in the entire country doing research and treating patients for complex conditions. Uh, so these are the things that are often missed if you just sort of focus on some of the public grading systems mm. uh, that don't necessarily reflect our uh, safety net mission for the community here, but also our academic mission. I've asked you this before, I'm going to do it again. You chose to go into healthcare, you chose to go into medicine, because? I grew up as a diabetic and I understood what it was like to be a patient going through difficulty. And by the way, I didn't have anywhere near the uh, social determinant problems, the life issues that people face every social day. Social determinants of your health. Of health, yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a suburban community. Both of my parents were physicians, and I still struggled with my diabetes. Uh, so what really made me want to go into medicine was my time in Baltimore when I was actually a counselor 
uh, for new, newly diagnosed diabetes patients. And uh, it was an inner city environment and a lot of folks had difficulty. And I started to see that the folks uh, that were impacted the most uh, were, it wasn't from their disease, it was from uh, their social issues at home. So the lack of a home in some cases. Poverty. Uh, the, uh, poverty itself. Hunger. Um, and so to not be able to address those mm. issues is a big oversight, which is really what made me want to go not only into medicine, but into public health and health care more largely. Well said, Dr. Sharif Elnahal, president and CEO of University Hospital, uh, right here in Newark, New Jersey, just a few miles from where we're taping. Thank you for joining us, doctor. Thank you, Steve. Got it. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back right after this. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. I'm Steve Adubato. This is the 166th New Jersey Education Association Convention here in Atlantic City. Uh, we are joined by Ed Richardson. It says here, past executive director of the NJEA. Um, first of all, Ed, it's great to see you. You too, Steve. We've had countless conversations over the years. I've, I disclose this every Always other time. Always good I'll, ones. How about I'll disclose this as well. The NJEA has been a big supporter, a, a major underwriter of what we do, and a supporter of NJTV News, our colleagues and partners. That being said, What's it like for you to look back on your, how many years? 26. Oh, boy. You look back and what sticks in your mind? Um, just that the quality of our public schools in the state has been a constant and the commitment of our members to the children of the state has been a constant. And so whatever issues have come up over the years, whether it's school funding, student assessment, uh, uh, family involvement, it's, it's always within that context. It's always within that framework. And so, um, you know, it's so gratifying to be able to, to uh, step away from the organization at a time when New Jersey's been ranked number one for the quality of our public schools in the country by Education Week. Um, when we have a level of member engagement and member voice and empowerment within our organization that is virtually unprecedented, mm -hmm. or at least in, in modern times, and, uh, and that we are focusing on the power of the diversity of our students and our membership in the state. Why does that matter so much, the last part? Um, New Jersey's uh, public school students are now uh, a majority children of color. And our educators, our education workforce is not, is not nearly close to that. And so we believe that it's important that as we move forward that uh, a, children of color see themselves more in their role models, but also that children who look like you and I see role models who don't look like them. And uh, we are very focused on that as a mission at NJ, and I'm very proud that that is a legacy that I know will continue uh, after I leave. It's interesting you said that, because this year, social justice, um, I don't want to say race relations, but in part it's about race. And, and, and Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, will be joining us, just a little, or joining us in just a little bit for an in-depth conversation, a major keynote address, right? Yeah. No accident that you're heavily into these areas. Absolutely. Um, it, you look at the logo for our conference, and it talks about student success. That's right. Social justice and education justice. Um, education justice. So we have the number one schools in the state. We can't honestly say that the quality of education is universal across the state of New Jersey. We also have, even though in uh, the aggregate, the most diverse state 
uh, perhaps in the nation, uh, um, very segregated public schools, very segregated communities. And if we're not helping our children to be comfortable working with people from all different backgrounds, that does not bode well for our society because as adults, we all have to do that. We all should do that. But is that the role of the NJA? It's the role of public education in, uh, in, in one sense. And yes, and NJA is a, a, a huge force for public education in New Jersey. It's no accident that the number one public schools in the state exist in a state with what I believe is the most powerful education union so you in the state. The two. Absolutely. And if you look across the country at the other high performing states, they are all strong union states. Why? Because those organizations not only advocate for the people who pay us dues, we advocate for the institution of public education. You know, Ed, one of the topics, Ed and I have had a lot of on air and offline conversations about a range of issues, but let's put this out there. You've been with the, the organization 26 years. You've been involved in a lot of bat battles, challenges, difficult situations, different administrations out of the state house. Governor Murphy just actually literally just walked by us before. Um, and I know it's a big deal to have him here at the convention. Yeah. You've had a good relationship with him. Very good. You did not have a particularly good relationship with the previous governor, Chris Christie. As a student of leadership, you and I have talked about this a lot. Do you take anything away from those eight years and say, you know what? This is a lesson about leadership, about life, negotiation. Pick, your, pick whatever you want to describe that we learned from that experience. Because it was acrimonious to say the best. Yes. Good, to say the least, I'm sorry. So, and it's funny that you say that because, you know, looking back on one of the things that I'm proud that we were able to bring forward is uh, we just got approved as a provider for um, instruction for educators to earn a new teacher leader credential. I heard about this. The law that authorized that to take place was passed and signed by Governor Christie. So even in an environment where there, yes, were certainly at times acrimonious On relations. On certain issues, pension issues, health care, right. right. uh, You've always got to find where is the common ground, where can we do things where there will be support because it's the right thing to do because there's, there's no way you can say that uh, uh, creating a credential for educators to help other educators is a bad thing. Yeah, well, why would one be against it? Exactly. So uh, even in an environment where, no, we, we never had a good relationship with Governor Christie, I would say we didn't really even have a relationship, but in that environment, you do have to find where can you make progress, where can you find common ground, uh, where could we build relationships within the Department of Education and the State Board of Education, which again, we did during that time. So um, it's, uh, that's part of leadership, is finding, finding where, wherever there is common ground, even if it's limited common ground. Even if you, people can't see it on the surface. Let me ask you this real quick. Um, I asked Marie Bliston, the president, about this, the president, the standardized test situation. You can give me an update on that, your sense of it, because the, the NGA has been very involved in the park test. Is that going to exist any longer? Um, eventually, it won't. Um, right now, the assessment uh, protocol that's been just recently adopted by the State Board of Education 
will dramatically kind of scale back the footprint of stand, statewide standardized testing in the state. There is on the other side of that a federal requirement that has to yes. be met, so that's that's been addressed. With the federal, the state, the uh, National Department of Education. Yes. Yeah. So it's the state and the feds. It is. Yeah. So they're you know, uh, but um, so the the federal requirements uh, are that we administer a standardized test in in the elementary grades three through eight and at least once in high school. They do not mandate that those results be used for high stakes outcomes in any way, either for students or educators. And a lot of research is pointing to the fact that, uh, that that's a good thing because, um, uh, let's face it, um, a student's life cannot be captured on a 40 or a 90 minute assessment. Yes, it's a good measure of kind of where they are, it's a good benchmarking tool. And that's how assessment should be used. It should be a powerful tool in the hands of educators, not the tool. but not the tool. Ed, listen, um, I know we'll continue to have conversations about education, about teachers, about students who matter most to them, but I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. Um, thank you to all the public school educators who have taught our children for so many years. Um, they make a difference every day, and um, we thank you for joining they us. They sure do. And having and, us here every and year. It has been my pleasure for 26 years to work for them. Thank you, Ed. Well done. We'll be right back right after this. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. She's back by popular demand. She's Heather Howard, former State Commissioner of uh, Health in New Jersey and also a lecturer at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Good to see you, Heather. Thanks, Steve. You're the smartest person I know on healthcare, which is a setup for the question. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Okay, presidential thing going on. Okay, we don't know what's going to happen. But I do know this, Medicare for All is being talked about a lot. What is it? What the heck does it cost? Well, we're, numbers as high as a trade. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody's talking about Medicare for All, which maybe isn't the right question to be talking about. What but is the right question? I think we ought to be talking about costs, because everybody in America is struggling with health care costs. Nobody thinks that we're getting the value we should be for what we're paying for in health care. OK, so if Elizabeth Warren says, hey, Medicare for All, just tax people who are the wealthiest, will not affect the middle class. When you hear that, is there a part of it that goes, really? Well, there's two issues. One, it's you know, easier said than done, right? Go we ahead. can talk about- What would have been done? Can you imagine, the, the concern I have is we haven't thought through the potential disruption, right? It means half of the country has health insurance through their employer. Yeah, what about if I have my private? You would, you would be transitioned onto a Medicare plan. Would I be forced? Uh, yes, within a number of years, yes. Is that why some say, how about Medicare for those who want it? Right. So you, some people say, well, how about Medicare for all for those who want to buy in? I think it, it all boils down to, do you think our current system's working and we should just maybe patch it up where it's not, or should we tear it down and start again? And you say as an expert on the subject? Well, I think history has taught us that we get, we get further when we build on what we have and we move incrementally. I don't know that there's a public appetite to throw everything out. And is there going to be a majority in the Senate to do so? I mean, a majority of, 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 of people who would support throwing the current system out? What is the, the president appears to say, President Trump, as we speak, appears to say, let's throw the whole thing out. Let's throw the Affordable Care Act out, Obamacare, throw it out. Do you think he understands what that would mean? I don't think he, he's appreciating how disruptive that would be and how, that, how, how politically disruptive that would be for him. 
um, he's, I think he sort of gets it when he says, we'll do it after I'm reelected. Well, what does that say? Then that means, <laughs> right, you know, after, I don't want to do anything between now and then, is a recognition that this, that this would cause a lot of people, um, a lot of people, a lot of pain that they have to change what they're doing. Yeah. So interesting. You know, the whole question of the Affordable Care Act, you and I were talking right before we got on the air. I don't want to confuse things, but part of the reason we do this program is to try to break things down and explain it, and that's why we always love having Heather here, because she can talk in very practical terms. There is a federal health care exchange. There is a state health care exchange. Consumers, people watching right now, can they go on either one of those, healthcare.gov, go mm -hmm. on, that's the federal site. It wasn't working for a while in the beginning. Now it does. Can you go on either one and sign up for insurance? Yes. You can go to healthcare.gov. We're in open enrollment now. Okay. So it's As we do this program in the middle of November. But go ahead. Yeah. So they can go on healthcare.gov. Now, but you're right. The Affordable Care Act lets states operate their own exchange if they want to. And Why? Well, because the theory was that states have different, different perspectives. The healthcare markets are very local. So let's have more competition? Is that yeah, what the argument that if, was? That, if, that California can do it in a way that meets California's needs better. And Governor Murphy thinks that New Jersey can do it differently. And so he, next year, at this time next year, will be opening a New Jersey marketplace. He's saying, look, I, I don't want the federal marketplace. I want New Jersey to own this because I think we can do it better. Does that make sense? I think it does because we're now paying more, given the size of the state. We're paying the feds <clears> more to do it for us. And we can do it better with that money. Keep it here in New Jersey. Do more advertising. Target it to populations oh, excuse here. Excuse me for interrupting. By the way, if you're listening on the audio side, Heather Howard, former commissioner of health in the state of New Jersey and also a lecturer at Princeton University on these subjects. Um, fair to say that the federal government cut back on the dollar. It's, you could say advertising. Advertising, particularly for those of us in the media, is a euphemism for public awareness. <laughs> They're like, listen, we're, we're, we can't do away with the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. I'm not going to spend a whole lot and let people know about it. That's right. So you have a president now entrusted with implementing a law he doesn't support. Yes. And so some people call it sabotage. He said, I'm not going to fund outreach. I'm not going to advertise the Affordable Care Act. And what's the risk of that is that means fewer people are signing up. And it's particularly risky because sick people will sign up for health insurance because they know they need it. But we need healthy people to sign up for health to insurance, too. Explain to people why it's not just younger, healthier people, but they happen to usually be healthier. Why do we need healthier people on, and what does that have to do with insurance rates? <laughs> well, because basically, insurance is about spreading risk. It's a big pool. That's right. It's about spreading risk, and you want as many people in there sharing the costs so that when somebody gets really sick, there's enough money to pay for those costs. If only sick people buy health insurance, there's not enough money in the system, or you have to charge really high premiums. Mm. If, if a, a broad swath of people are buying health insurance, and especially healthy people, mm. and arguably not using it, then that means there's enough money in the pool. So, so Heather Howard, why is the number of uninsured people in New Jersey rising? Well, I think partly because there's been this sabotage from the federal level. They said, we're not going to advertise the, we're not going to advertise. And that's partly what um, Governor Murphy's responding to. He's saying, okay, I'm going to take back control. So we will advertise it. We will let people know when open enrollment is. We will make sure they know um, what plans are available. And so that's the tension here. You know, you and I have had this conversation many times, and I'm going to put it this way in the time we have left. If someone says, hey, let's just fix the health care problem, you laugh when I say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. There isn't a fix. There's not a fix. I, I like to think in 1948, Harry Truman tried to do universal health care. 
At that time, healthcare was 4% of our GDP. Now it's 18%. 4% to 18 Of our GDP. Am I wrong that Richard Nixon actually tried to do something? He did too. And he actually pretty progressive stuff. Ted Kennedy used to say that one of his biggest regrets was that he didn't cut a deal with, with Nixon. We could have gotten universal health care with Nixon. Wow. And it wasn't good enough at the time, but it would have been better than where we are now. Then Hillary Clinton, when she was first lady, and then all these iterations. So finally Obama makes significant progress, but we're black backsliding now and losing ground. And, and I really think once it's 18% of the GDP, how do you reorganize a fifth of the economy? I don't know, but we're going to keep asking Heather Howard. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. Thanks. Stay right there. I'm Steve Adubato. This has been State of Affairs. Thanks for watching. I'm out of breath. We'll see you next week. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by PSE&G, the law firm of Gibbons PC, MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey, Wells Fargo, Johnson & Johnson, NJM Insurance Group, Community Food Bank of New Jersey, Fedway Associates, and by ADP. Promotional support provided by NJ Advance Media, and by Tap Into TV. PSE&G is building New Jersey's clean energy future. We're working to protect our network against extreme weather, expanding and upgrading transmission lines, and modernizing our natural gas system by installing new, more durable underground pipes. At PSE&G, our goal is to make sure you have the safe, reliable energy you need to power your life now and into the future.